Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Good afternoon. This is Dean Finelli with Politics and Life Science Radio. Thank you for joining us today. I'm very excited to have as our guest today, Captain Kevin Mac McGovern. Uh, Captain McGovern is a is running as a Republican congressional candidate in Central Florida. So we'll bring uh, Captain McGovern on in a few minutes. Great experience uh, serving this country, and look really looking forward to talking to Captain McGovern. Before we do, let's see what's going on in around the world. Uh, you know, Ukraine is really uh, just sort of encompassing everything, but uh, COVID is still sitting around. It's uh, really ironic how all of a sudden we don't hear that much about it anymore uh, with uh, the bigger story out there, but COVID is still around and uh, Omicron is still our dominant variant. Uh, Pfizer discussed this morning the potential of seeking authorization for a fourth dose. I think, you know, not too many people are going to be pleased with that. Uh, You know, I think just from a science perspective, these mRNA vaccines have really you know, safety and efficacy has really been uh, exceptionally high. Uh, I think the, the real concern is with the durability. They tend to, especially when we're talking about the new variants that have come out, the durability of these vaccines, meaning how long they last, tends to wane after a couple months. Hence the uh, need for potentially a fourth dose. I would say, at least in my opinion, it looks like, you know, people at high risk, people over 65 with comorbidities, uh, younger people that have um you know, some like sort of organ transplants, you know, chemotherapy or some medication that suppresses the immune system. I would think that would be the main target of this fourth dose. Generally speaking, you know, I would not think the general public needs a fourth dose, especially we're moving out of our uh, sort of respiratory distress season, moving into the spring and summer in North America. So uh, we'll see how this goes, but it looks like certainly, you know, as we move into an endemic stage, we're probably going to need an annual shot. Hopefully, you know, we'll get an annual shot that actually lasts the full season. So we don't have to go back to that, but you know, that still remains to be seen. Uh, when we think about, uh, what's going on in Ukraine, just, you know, a humanitarian crisis just doesn't seem to really capture the, the effects of what's going on there. Uh, we, we know that the, the Russians are moving in, uh, not as quickly as I think they anticipated or even U S intelligence anticipated, but nonetheless, you know, I think we continue to see this trudge of Russian troops continuing to press forward to Kiev and, you know, really concerning that they just indiscriminately are, you know, fire, firing weapons and, uh, you know, missiles into civilian uh, facilities. We saw a maternity, ward, a maternity hospital was damaged uh, there with, um, you know, again, just this indiscriminate firing by Russians, uh, which is, you know, 
sounds just shocking to say, but I think, you know, people who are experts in the, when we look at the history of how Russian Russian uh, foreign policy really deals in these type of situations, <laughs> say this is kind of their playbook. Uh, so, which is unfortunate. Uh, we know that the U.S. has uh, sent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in cash and weapons. Uh, they just passed, I believe today, uh, a $13.6 billion in additional funds that will uh, assist Ukrainians. But the big issue we're hearing about is this issue about should the should the U.S. be involved with these Polish MiG aircraft and sending them to Ukraine. And, you know, just as the knee-jerk reaction from myself is, of course we should. You know, we need to help these people. But certainly, you know, there are a lot bigger issues. I think the Biden administration, you know, for all of the faults we've had over the last year with some of the decision-making, you know, we know there's a very methodical approach that they're taking to this to obviously keep us out of World War III and keep us in a, a hot situation with Russia. So, you know, it's really a tough situation, um, you know, when we when we know that Vladimir Putin has already indicated, you know, that he would potentially use nuclear weapons. So uh, that's why I'm just so excited today to have as our guest, Captain Kevin Max McGovern. As I mentioned, Captain McGovern is a retired naval officer. He is running as a conservative Republican uh, in central Florida. Uh, captain McGovern is a retired Navy captain who served across the globe over decades with the U.S. Navy, uh, just an all around, you know, served his con- our country and just a, uh, a real hero. So, Captain McGovern, thank you for joining us today. And first of all, thank you for your service to our country. And, you know, it looks like you're running again, continuing with the service. So uh, maybe before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your platform and what you stand for? Uh, thanks. And thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, when I got into this, as you said, uh, you know, I had four decades serving my country and I actually believed at that point that, uh, it was time to hang it up and, and pass the torch. But what's happened is I have seen what's happened in DC and, and what's going on right now is very indicative of that has been a complete lack of leadership, uh, lack of experience and, and in many cases, a lack of integrity. So I've decided to, you know, come off the bench and get back in there. My platform is, I'm, I'm a conservative, but I am middle of the road. I'm, I'm trying to prevent, and I hope this happens in many districts across the country. I'm not, I don't know how uh, much I'll, much stock I'll put in it, but in my case, I want to stop the craziness in D.C. I want to stop the radicals on both sides of the aisle from going to Congress and not getting anything done. Um, we've been doing this for way too long. There's so many issues we could talk about, not today, but th- that we've been kicking the can on and we just don't want to have people stand up and say, here's what we need to do. Let's get the smart people in the room. Let's get the experienced people in the room and get some legislation passed that fixes these problems. Although, you know, we're so focused. You were talking about COVID a minute ago. And, you know, if this was last month, that's all we'd be talking about, right? And now we're talking about the war in Europe. And there's so many other things that are falling behind that. So that's why I'm running. That's what I intend to do. I intend to stop bad legislation and write good legislation and and get like-minded patriots uh, not just military, but like-minded people who love the country and want to get this thing back on track. Well, and I think, you know, when you say that, I think that's what most Americans want. I think, you know, on both sides, 
and I'm glad you said that because I, I, I do think it's on both sides, the right and left. You have people that just seem more interested in getting, you know, a number of clicks and a number of followers on Twitter than they do in solving problems. So um, really happy to hear that. And I think, you know, sort of focusing on the, the middle and not these extremes is I, I wish more people would do that. But jumping into, you know, a situation that I know you're very familiar with, with your background, um, this issue we talked about earlier about this, this idea of transferring Polish uh, MiG jet fighters through Germany, a U.S. Air Force base in Germany, then, you know, to the Ukrainians. Uh, what is your what's your view on that? Well, you know, I, I think uh, the press in many ways has confused the American public and probably confused Congress as well. First off, they, we, we talked about doing a no-fly, uh, the U.S. doing a no-fly. Now, if we did that, that would be hundreds of aircraft, you know, combat fighter jets, refueling tankers, uh, intelligence, command and control. We'd have to have combat search and, and rescue. Well, that would be... Um, that would certainly be a front. That would be stepping over Article 5, and I don't agree with that. But on the issue of the transference, first of all, there's no international law that says one nation can't gift another nation an aircraft. What, the, what they had been planned from Poland, they were going to fly them over to uh, uh, the base in Germany, which is really a U.S. base, but it's a NATO base. They're going to repaint them, re-register them, and have the have the Ukrainians fly them. Now, here's the interesting piece of this. Right now, we're supplying Stinger missiles, which certainly are lethal and have and will bring down uh, Russian aircraft. We've, we've given the, um, the Javelins, which are anti-tank. Um, although we don't have great intel, there's rumor that down in Odessa, they may have some anti-ship missiles as well, U.S. built, U.S. supplied, or at least NATO supplied. So if that's true, why are we drawing the line with the aircraft? So it's an interesting concept because if one was shot down, it would be a registered Ukrainian aircraft under the Ukrainian flag with Ukrainian pilots. Now, one thing you do have to understand, the reason I think they want them, first of all, it'd be a great morale booster. But secondly, those, I believe there's 18 or uh, 28 of the MiGs, and they have the MiG 29s. They have the NATO avionics suite. In other words, uh, for people who don't quite understand that, they have upgraded capabilities for communication, command, and control. So they would, in that case, be more like a NATO aircraft, but they certainly would not be a NATO aircraft. So my take was. Um, at first, when I thought this was a three-day war, and, and most people did, and, and I, most our intelligence community believed that, they thought this would be a blitzkrieg. They would they would cut off uh, Kiev, and that would be it, and then they'd move around down to the south. Well, that didn't happen. I was against it at the beginning because I thought, you know, by the time we do anything, this thing is over. Why, you know, it, it's a it's a risk reward equation at that point. You say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and risk these guys lobbing in some thermonuclear devices, and that's not worth it for this three-day war. What we didn't know at the time was that Ukraine, <laughs> these people are great fighters. They want their country. They, wanna, they, they wanted things like they were. We've seen the humanitarian crisis um, 
and, you know, Putin's kind of a monster, let's face it. So this, there's many reasons I believe this war started, but now where we're at, after three weeks, I would have voted to let the Ukrainians have those. And I would have done it for the specific purpose of sending that message, because see, here's, here's where we're at right now. Putin is calling the shots. He, I mean, he's, he's writing the rules, right? So if we can send in stingers and we can send in javelins, uh, but he draws the line at sending in uh, old MIGs, why does he get to make that choice? And I believe it was a perfect opportunity for Putin to now call our bluff, and he did it very successfully. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And it just seems like, you know, when we when we look at the situation there, and I'm not a military analyst by any means, but it almost seems inevitable that unless, you know, we do something and maybe the thing we do is, as we're talking about, deliver these aircraft. I mean, it almost just seems inevitable. And this, you know, and Putin just seems like he will go on basically do anything to these people just to get what he wants. And that's control of Ukraine. So isn't it, aren't we just delaying the inevitability unless we give them these planes, Ukraine's going to fall? Well, a lot of this, and, you know, I could talk all day about how we got here. I mean, this war started back in, in 1999 with the Chechnya war and, and all the things that the, the bear bit off one piece at a time. But I'm afraid at this point, it's going to make I would still like to see it, but it's not going to make a lot of difference because it seems, and this is like in the last hour or two, the uh, the intel is showing that he is in he's circling around the south now. He's coming in from the northeast, the northwest. He's coming around Kiev. He, his battle plan is very very obvious. Um, this won't be an air war at this point. What's going to do? He's going to come around. He's going to shell the city, try and get the the population to leave so that he can scare everybody. And now, now keep in mind, they still have air defense, supposedly. I mean, again, the, our intel, our boots on the ground are very scarce there. But it looks like the Ukrainians still have some air defense in Kiev. So the Russians are going to think twice about making this an air war. Um, what they're going to do is they're going to do like they've done everywhere else. They're going to do a ground war. They're going to shell the city. It's going to be population center it's going to kill civilians it's going to be what we saw down in Mariupol. Um, and the difference here the difference here is in in uh, kiev they've had two weeks to prepare so those those stingers i was talking about if it was an air war and the javelins and just the will of the ukrainian people is something that is bottled up in that city now i'm not giving them you know, I, I don't know what their chances are. That's gonna, it's gonna be tough. They're, they're up against a, a formidable, formidable foe. But the last thing the Russians wanna do is urban fighting. I mean, that is the toughest. Uh, in, in Iraq, we learned that in Afghanistan, you know, door to door, kicking in doors is really a hard way to go. And these people are waiting for them. I, and that's what, that's what the intel community is believing now. What they're looking for, the Russians, is they're looking for capitulation, and I don't think that's going to happen. I think they'll fight to the death. 
Well, they certainly, you know, they have the that momentum. You know, President Zelensky is really motivating them to fight. And you know, when you hear the see the interviews on the ground, that that just seems like the uh, universal feeling there from the the Ukrainian citizens. So let's continue to you know keep them in our thoughts. But I want to shift to you know the U.S. and you know we know that uh, recently President Biden uh, cut off the importation of oil from Russia into the U.S. and you know we're here seeing across the country uh, record high gas prices. You know there's been a lot of talk about whether the U.S. should uh, you know pump oil and look I recognize oil is a, a fungible commodity traded on global uh, global markets so. Uh, you know, the argument that you hear some people make is even if we pump more, that won't, that won't matter. I, I don't really buy that argument because, you know, then why are we asking the, potentially the Saudis and, you know, the Venezuelans to pump oil? Shouldn't we just be doing that here? And isn't it just inevitable? Or is our climate, um, you know, that climate wing of the left party, left, uh, left wing of the Democratic Party just that, that strong now? Well, they are that strong, and I think um, – I believe this, and I think history will prove me right. If nothing else, this was an oil war. If, if oil was, oh, let's say $30, $40 a barrel, Putin would have never in a million years done this. I mean you need to look back in history. Look, look at the Spaniards when they lost their gold and they had to – that was the end of Spain because they couldn't pay their war debts and couldn't finance their wars. Um, this was Putin. He wasn't going to do this. He needs the money. When you look at him, I mean, you gotta, you gotta look at this and think, gosh, Russia's income, their, their entire GDP, there's like 40, 50% in gas and oil. So if you would take that and let's, let, let's play numbers game real easy and say, let's say it's 50% and you half that on your income, that's a 25% hit. Could you imagine the United States taking a 25% hit in GDP? Are we going to go out and venture and spend on some war? I mean, we might, I don't know, but Congress now doesn't seem to have any limits. But seriously, when you think of it in those terms, if we had kept our oil dominance, we, and here's where people say, well, gosh, it's a, it is a worldwide traded commodity and it's not an easy business. It's not as easy as most people think, but stop and look at the 30,000 foot view. Do we have plenty of gas and oil that we can get either from our own country or from Canada? And the answer is yes. So shouldn't we be doing that? Shouldn't we? Because then we, as part of OPEC, then we can drive the price down. We, we get that vote. We get that control. So absolutely we could you know we should be down in midland we should be in alaska and this is this is policy based this isn't anything else and what you said earlier about the far far left wing of the democratic party is is holding the party hostage it really is so yes we need to we need to turn the taps back on there's a lot of pieces of that puzzle but it, it, when you really get away from all the, you know, the nitpicking and you, you just kind of look at it from above. You go, you know what, this, this should have never been turned off. And certainly it should be turned on because, you know, it, it won't be tomorrow, but once you do that, keep in mind, everybody has to remember oils is all about futures and it's about supply and demand. So the futures markets have just gone crazy on this. 
and supply and demand. If I'm an oil company and I'm saying, hey, where am I going to get my product to sell? Um, the futures market's going to go through the roof. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And until we policy-wise say, let's do it. I mean, this is America. If you really wanted to get that oil out and you wanted to get it out quick and you wanted to get the taps back on, we could do it physically. It is a political decision not to do that. Captain McGovern, thank you so much for that insight today and thank you for your time. On Politics and Life Science Radio, we want to thank Captain McGovern. He's really dedicated his life to our country. Uh, He's a decorated war veteran, successful businessman, and definitely well-suited to lead our nation in Congress. Uh, Captain McGovern, thank you again for your time today, and best of luck with your uh, upcoming race. Okay, thanks, and um, I'd love to come back anytime. we got lots of stuff to talk about. We'd love to have you, and I'll take you up on that. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to us today on Politics and Life Science Radio. This is Dean Finale. Uh, We'll be back with the latest on the news and politics and life sciences. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences. 